everyone. Welcome to the Good Tech Fest podcast. My name is Genevieve Smith, and I'm so excited to be back guest hosting another episode. I help social impact organizations align their data and data practices to their missions. Nothing is neutral. So the way we understand and interact with our data will always reflect some set of values. It takes intentional, and as we talk about in this episode, intimate work to make sure that they're the values that support our missions. The episode we have for you today is with Gladys Molina Alt. Gladys is the executive director of the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights, an organization that works to protect and advance the rights and best interests of immigrant children according to the Convention on the Rights of the Child in state and federal law. The Young Center does this through direct service, policy advocacy, and technical assistance. Full disclosure, I had the great privilege of working with the Young Center to develop their theory of change and to conduct a data ecosystem diagnostic. So Gladys and I have spent a lot of time over the last year talking about data in the social sector and all of the emotions that come with it. In this conversation, we talk about centering joy and humanity, as well as how we can build relationships with our data that nurture us and our work. I hope you enjoy. Okay. Hi, Gladys. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So I would love to start with just a, an intro, any kind you want, but would love to hear who you are, how you got here, and what feeds you and brings you joy. Awesome. I'm Gladys Molina Alt. Uh, I work uh, at the Young Center, as you mentioned, uh, out of the Phoenix office. And what brings me here, uh, my own personal story. I was a kid born in El Salvador um, whose parents fled to America to flee the Civil War in El Salvador. And then they brought me to L.A. County in 1990 um, as, a, as a kid. Um, and experienced the next 10 years of my life as an undocumented immigrant. And out of that experience, decided that I wanted to become an immigration lawyer and provide legal services and information to other kids like me that needed it so that they can get their green card and go at the American dream. And that led me to a career in representing unaccompanied kids in Texas and then back in California. And then I came out to Arizona in 2011 and then joined the Young Center in 2016. And what brings me fundamentally again and again to this work is, is the human side of legal services, uh, especially for unaccompanied immigrant kids. Thank you for sharing. Um, and yeah, the, that human side, you know, not only in the work, but would just love to, to hear a little bit too of, you know, what, what makes you laugh? What, what makes you smile? Well, children, I have two little boys. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. They make me smile, honestly. When I wake up in the morning, they make me smile. And what makes me what makes me laugh is what comes to mind right now is when I see another person's spirit thriving and being free. Like when and you can tell that when some the way that somebody shows up in the role, that brings me joy. Um and laughter, my brother's jokes. <laughs> Because they're, they, they're not that fun, but they make me laugh. <laughs> uh, my brother's jokes and other people's laughter also brings me laughter. Um, 
but the, the triumph, the thriving, and the freedom of the human spirit brings me joy. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for sharing. And um, the listeners won't see this, but I think both of our smiles on Zoom just got <laughs> got bigger as as you mentioned yeah. that. And um, yeah, that it's community is is yeah. so much of what that sounds like. So yeah. thank you for for sharing that with us. Cool. So my first uh, podcast question is: um, as a nonprofit leader and practitioner, what's been your relationship with data and technology well and at the outset it was like there was no technology so I started in this field Genevieve in 2006 in uh, a little town in South Texas called Harlingen I was uh, an independent contractor for the American Bar Association and literally Genevieve when we showed up we just had like a one-page intake and it was just a piece of paper, write it down. And we didn't enter data anywhere. And it would just go into a file that would go into the attic of the house where we were working. So my just my first experience of being a nonprofit lawyer at the border um, was no technology and just and, and paper and a lot of index, right? So there was I, my experience of it also was take the information down and we really didn't even have time to think about what we would do with the numbers and the data or how we would compile it. I think our, our attempt, our effort at trying to do something about data was spreadsheets, Excel sheets. Um, and, and there really was no education for me as a nonprofit attorney about what to do with that. I think we were so worried about like doing the intakes and getting the information of the kids and then choosing which cases we would take or what information we would forward on to somebody else that might take the case that there really, really wasn't time for us to think about what we would actually do with data and how to manage it or even um, or even what we could do with it. <laughs> so that was my first experience of it. And then my next job um, was a little bit more of the same, just in a, in a fancier office in downtown LA. <laughs> but no case system in place either good old intakes and um, in manila folders. And I had a, a colleague that then joined that she saw how much I held in my head about information because I am one of those, um, I don't dread data, but I am a little bit, I think at that time, especially in those first two jobs as a legal service provider, I was indifferent to it because the volume was so high that I cared most about reaching the kid, getting the story, finding the pro bono attorney, knowing what to do with it, then I cared about managing what I'm about managing the data, honestly. And I think in my third job, you know, at, in Arizona, again, legal service provider, detention work, same thing. And I just, I have memories of us pushing boxes across the floor and sending them to a storage. <laughs> um, and um, it is here at the Young Center in large part, I think, through our work, through the 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 work that we've done with you, honestly, that has made me think more about data and um, the different aspects of data in terms of the the work for the program, the work on our philanthropy, um, relationship building with with the funders, and the story that we tell about the work that we do, and the story that we tell about the organization, but also about the story that is telling about our staff, what they're dealing with, right? Because at the end of the day, we collect 
the data from our clients, from the kids that we serve, but it is our people who are trying to figure out how to handle it and what to do with it. And however we decide, whatever we decide to do or not do with data and the processes that come around data, it is our staff who are dealing with it. Mm. That's all of it's huge. And I'm sure there are people who can relate to that, pushing those big documentation storage boxes around and not actually ever using the information in those boxes and having it be fine. Nothing was ever terrible because you weren't using using those documents. Um, but I think it's those are both very interesting experiences. And one thing that I don't think I had ever thought about was what our data actually does say about our staff and therefore our mission mission delivery. Um, but I want to go before we dive into that, I want to go back just a little bit and sort of hear kind of your thoughts on the differences between those, you know, stacks of paper in the attic or in a current office. I mean, we we deal with this all the time. And I think it can be humbling to remember where a lot of organizations are starting because a lot of conversations about tech and data in the nonprofit space tend to be, and no shade to the Salesforce consultants. I know many of them and I love them, uh, but we tend to start with, well, what system do we need? Rather than what data do we have and are we using those data? And do we even need those data? What is mm -hmm. it that we're doing here? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about kind of the the differences between the two, because I always, and you know this because of our work together, but I like to tell my colleagues and clients, data for data's sake isn't actually helpful and can do a lot of harm, especially to communities such as undocumented immigrants and, and especially children um, mm -hmm. in those communities. So yeah, would love would love to hear maybe it's, do you miss anything from, from those days when you didn't really have to think about the data and you know what can we learn from that time while we're moving forward in our organizations today? Oh, I wish I had thought about data and I think thinking about what what we need is is important. I think a lot a large part of what drives um, a legal service intake is how can I distill a claim here for this for this child, right? So a lot of what drove that that intake and the data that we were collecting was that bottom line question. But I also think that we could have taken a broader approach to how we use that, that information to, to look at patterns and maybe say like, oh, we're seeing a trend in an age of certain kids or we're seeing this issue come up that now that I think back on it, Genevieve, could it even help us think about who we hired and who we needed on the team? Because we just kept thinking, oh, we need lawyers, we need this. But if we had used the data, even not just to inform the legal claim that we were going to pursue or what we were going to do with that case, literally it was just like, we do the intake and then we said, is this a bucket of follow-up or no follow-up? Is this a bucket of a referral? Is this a bucket of where we're going to pitch this case for representation, right? And I think as I reflect on it, my, my, my approach to data as an attorney was very narrow as opposed to stepping back and thinking, what else can this data, data tell us about who we should have on staff? 
what are the patterns, what are the needs of the population that we're trying to, that we're trying to serve? And yeah, to your comment about like data, just for the sake of data, for us, it became that and didn't have, um, did, didn't ask ourselves the bigger question of what do we have and what is it telling us? And what is it that we really need? All of that sounds sounds enormous, and I appreciate that lens of looking back. What what could we have done? Um, but one thing that I've seen quite a bit in my work with organizations is, sure, we would love to think creatively, we would love to think strategically, but we have a hundred and one things to to do today, and even more tomorrow. And and we know under stress and when things are hard uh, and reactive, curiosity, empathy and patience tend to go out the window. And mm-hmm. so I would love to hear your perspective, especially as an executive director, how can we, you know, do you have recommendations or ideas of how we can sort of balance that? What, what do we need to get done now? And can we be thinking a little bit more strategically about how we're managing data? And, and for the purposes of this conversation, of course, data also refer to knowledge stories right it's not just the numbers and spreadsheets but um would love would love to hear just from that practitioner and leadership level that you've got how can we sort of build some creativity into what we're doing now yeah and as you say that as you pose the question what comes to mind for me is yes we might be too busy we have 101 things to do and who has time to get creative and and look at it but I think what I would say is, well, then take a look at how how many questions you have to answer and the other 101 things that you're doing and how collecting data and organizing data or being intentional about data could have helped us actually reduce the time that we're spending on those things. Because in the 101 other things that we're doing, it, it is still providing information. It is still trying to craft a narrative for something. It is still trying to figure out and plan and do strategic planning for the future and all of that can be informed by data so I think what I would say to that is if you if you get intimate and intentional about data those 101 things might fit better in a in in the puzzle that you're trying to figure out right so that I think that's what comes to mind and um and that's something I didn't know Years ago, like I, I didn't even in my in my previous um, program director roles, I didn't know that. But what I I appreciate most recently is that data is always driving decisions and plans, and so why not be intentional and intimate about it at the outset? I'm. I'm blown away by the use of the word intimate. I think that's so really what comes to mind is it's sacred. We, this is such vulnerable work. This is such real work that many of us are, are incredibly driven by. And so the letdowns feel really big and the wins feel really small, usually for a lot of people working in this field. Um, And yeah, that idea of being intimate and intentional is just 
I'm repeating it because I want to sit with it and I want mm-hmm. other people to sit with it. Um, and I think another thing that's important to think about here is, you know, I've talked to a lot of nonprofit leaders who they say, yeah, I know my staff just doesn't care though. And they're so busy and I've already put so much on their plate. And so, you know, we've had a lot of conversations in the past about how to, how do we build momentum? How do we build buy-in and understand what it is that people need? Um, kind of building on that idea of being intimate and, and intentional around data. How, how have you learned and are continuing to learn how to engage Um, because this can be such personal work. And then when we look outside of our virtual office doors, uh, there are a lot of other people involved also. So I would just love to hear your your take on that. I think what comes to mind is that data data drives data data drives everything. What it comes to mind right now, and as 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 a leader, as I'm trying to sort out what I do with, a, you know, what decisions I make on a programmatic level, what decisions I make on a staff level, a systematic level, operational level. If I have, if I if I'm intimate with the data, if I know what is happening, if I can follow trends, if I can, if the data can inform that, then I I don't have to like struggle too much through the through the thinking and the solutions because data will offer me solutions. I that that's what comes to mind right now. And it it's almost like thinking about it in the um in the one of the things I'm learning right now currently in the diversity, equity, and inclusion context is that if we ignore certain conversations or if we don't pay attention to certain things that are surfacing, if we don't have the time right now to pay attention to them and invest we're going to end up paying on the back end of it. And I think data is, is the same way. If we don't get, if we don't sit with it and see what is telling or not telling us or what is there or what is missing, then we're going to spend time trying to rack our brains to figure something out that data could have helped us easily arrive at something. And I'll give you a very concrete and very particular example. There was a case one time that I was working on that I didn't know what my advocacy strategy was going to be because this particular kiddo had a lot of serious incidents reports, SIRs. And SIRs, if you, it's a bank of data. It, it has numbers, it has notes, it's a bank of data. And I remember thinking, I don't know where to go. I felt stuck in that case, literally stuck. And what I decided to do was turn all the SIRs and system, like the dates, uh, who wrote them, what time of day they were written, and I turned that data and it was through organizing the data that I found a way through the case. And I, and I very much feel like sometimes as leaders, we feel like we're stuck figuring out what do we do with this? What do we need? And if we get intimate, if we really get to know the data in front of us, it can save us time on the on one kind of end. I don't know if it's in the back end, on the back end. It's on some kind of end. It will it, it will help us save time. So, yeah, that's 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 what comes to mind. That's a really beautiful example. And as you're speaking, one of the things that comes to mind, and I think you and a lot of other people I've worked with have heard me say this: How do you become friends with your data? And and everything that you just described, it almost sounds like building a relationship with the data and realizing, okay, 
if I can sit next to the data on the couch and ask what it's seeing. And, you know, also I think especially sort of anthropomorphizing the data um, is helpful for me, especially to remind myself that data are also flawed. Data are never 100% true. They're so biased. We've got to think about context. And especially in the example that you just gave, understanding the landscape, understanding where that kiddo was, what the time of day actually meant, what the politics were, is so, so important. So everything that you just described just gave me this visual of, can we go to lunch with our data? Can Mm. we build this relationship with our data where... When the data says one thing, we know to ask another question, just yeah. like yeah. when our best friend says, I'm fine. How are you? You know that maybe there's some follow-up to do there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The way that she breathed before she answered the question or like, or just yeah. she doesn't make you uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a really beautiful way to think about you know, intimacy with data, not only knowing that it's there or knowing that they are there, but also knowing where they come from and what the biases or assumptions are and what the potential is for using those data. Which I think also, yeah, no, go ahead. And I was going to say, and as you say that, as you go to lunch with data, you also begin to um, think, get a clearer picture too of what you want to what you want to do, how that relationship can nurture you, right? How how that can be good for you, how that can be useful to you. Um, but if you just sort of take it at face value, like, okay, going back to that case example, kid had 15 SIRs. Okay, that's a data point, but what what are, what more can we do with the the broad, you know, the broader data point that is sitting in front of us at lunch. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I think it goes back to, you know, our intro about community and, you know, everything is connected. Nothing is neutral as, mm-hmm. as we know. Um, yeah. And I think that also allows room for some grace in, because I think we tend to kind of beat our data up. If it doesn't give us an answer right away, we're very mm-hmm. frustrated with data. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tend to ask our data questions they can't always answer. Um, they may not, you know, that person at lunch may not know how the subway runs. So they can't give you instructions, but that's no right. reason to get mad at them. They're visiting. Right. It's right. fine. <laughs> um, no, so I really, I really love this analogy. Um And, you know, one of the other things that I'm hearing you say quite a bit is in using data intentionally and figuring out how that relationship with data can nurture you, can nurture your staff, can nurture your mission, there's got to be some agency there. And I think a very common conversation across the sector is how much power funders and funding partners can have in what data are being collected by organizations. And of course, like massive shout out to trust-based philanthropy and and the Mm -hmm. folks who are working on unrestricted monies and um, and really focusing on that actual partnership. But I would be interested from that lens of being intentional with with data, having that time, having that space for creativity. Um, One of the things we've talked a bit Uh, quite a bit about in our work is, you know, 
what does the science fiction future look like? Shout out to Adrian Murray Brown and Octavia Butler. Uh, but you know, there isn't a roadmap for building a system that actually does serve everybody. And so what we like to say in this work is let's not talk about why not, because we know why not. That's important. And yes, but for the next 10 minutes, we're going to put that aside and put on our science fiction hats. If mm -hmm. time, money, political constraints were not an issue, what would this world look like? So using that lens and thinking about everything we've talked about so far, I would just love to really give you a megaphone <laughs> yeah. to, to really understand, like, what would you ask of funders and, and partners and some of these decision makers when it comes to data and measurement? One thing that comes to mind is to not focus so much on the client and on the outputs per se and the um, number of cases, but on the journey that it takes, like what, what it goes into serving a case, right? Like one thing I have learned in the 15 years that I have been working in the space of unaccompanied kids is that not every case is the same because not every kid is the same and their stories are, are, are not the same. There are cases that when it was an asylum case, but they went one way and there was another asylum case that went a different way. And we see that, we see that at the Young Center because our cases are complex, if you will. We, we, we scout for the most complex cases that need a child advocate. And so our cases are supposed to not be identical cookie cutter cases. That's just the way we're, we're set up. And so I think that that's one thing that I would um, that I would ask of funders is to to not just focus on the numbers per se of cases that are cases and kids that are being served, but what it takes to serve uh, each child. So beginning to um, appreciate things such as um, the circumstances of, of that the youth or the child is in as they're going through the cases. Like it is one thing to be working with a client that is homeless versus another client that has stable housing. Yes, I'm responsible for just handling the legal case or the best interest representation advocacy, but it is two, it's two separate things when one has stable housing and the other one doesn't. The other, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is the, the internal operational or like the, the internal um, staff resources that, that go into it. Um, and asking about that, like the, the toll that certain cases may take on staff or what, how long a case takes, right? So that also matters. Being on a case for six months is very different than being on a case for two years. Um, and the third aspect that comes to mind is, and I guess this goes back to the way that I learned to gather data as a immigration lawyer for kids. I was always looking for what had harmed them, what had hurt the kid. And I almost want to turn those questions upside down and say, what helped the child? What 
what is what are the indicators of that child thriving that support them because it makes me think too about the end goal is my end goal to assess and capture how much a kid has suffered how many bad things have happened to them or is my end goal to say that happened and here's how we move forward oftentimes we needed that information in order to win a legal claim for asylum or special immigrant juvenile status or a trafficking visa or some other type of legal protection. But in the end, it was a means to helping that child thrive and, and, and find protection and stability. So I'm, I would also like to see data be focused on what are the things that are helping people that we serve thrive and feel safe. And even just in asking the question of what makes a client feel safe, that is a data point that we as providers should know because if our clients are feeling safe in the process of being served by us, gathering, gathering information, working with them even takes on a whole different, um, a, a different dynamic, if you will. All of that is so, so massive. And, and thank you for, for sharing it. And, you know, one thing that in our work together that we just finished up recently that we were really focused on was, yeah, how do you focus on the joy in, in the data instead of the tears? And, you know, thinking about this overall system of philanthropy, it tends to be, and this is a generalization, my, <laughs> my funders who are listening, um, but, but there's a pattern of prove to us that you can survive some of the most heinous, heartbreaking, terrible mm. stuff without a conversation about how can you thrive? And mm. that focus is self-perpetuating and it, and it can turn into an ideology and it gets very dangerous. And, and I would say that's also kind of how we've ended up talking about, you know, we have our anecdotes, our stories in our annual reports, and we have our case numbers uh, in many different organizations and, and how they report out. And, um, you know, it, it also, again, brings me back to your intro, like, what makes people laugh? What brings people joy? And it can feel frustrating, I think, at first, because it isn't immediately quantifiable. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm constantly thinking about is, so what? Who said we needed, who, who's in charge here? Yeah. <laughs> who made up yeah. these rules? Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I just really appreciate that, yeah. that piece of it. And it, and I think another thing that, you know, I have spent a lot of time with different folks talking about is this idea of patience, because I think, you know, I think intimacy, like we've been talking about is a huge one. So is patience because we can't build trust without some space and we can't yeah. hold whether it's our data or a kiddo who needs some support right now or our colleague or our staff, we can't hold them as fully human unless we take some breaths. Um, yeah. And that, that's a big thing that, that I'm hearing too. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say that, it makes me think like um, no human being, right. Can be reduced to one experience. And although we work with a lot of kids that have been through a lot and have a lot we can't reduce, you know, our data and what we know about them to just that. There's more to them. There's there are, there are artists in them. There are athletes in them. There is 
joy and a whole story and communities and other continents and other countries behind them. And um, so it makes me think that that the people we serve can be reduced to one experience, right? Even though it's 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 the ground on which we meet, right? It's that particular chapter of their life is not it's not that. And it just makes me think too that the human experience is so much defined by by emotions and relationships. And um, we don't always capture that. And it makes me think too of how if I can as an attorney, if I can present a client on the stand or a case where a kid feels connected and joyful, that goes on to impact the outcome of the case. It's like with anything, any human, right, that you see in front of you, if you see their resilience, if you see their joy, if you see their, the fabric of their social network, you know somehow they're going to end up in good arms. You know somehow they're going to stand on their two feet. And so it pulls investment from people. It pulls, you want to, you're, you're pulled by them, right? A judge is going to say, you know what, kiddo? Yeah, like, welcome to America. Um, so yeah, and, and, and we don't always take the time to ask those questions because the, the circumstances that the kids are in right now and us trying to advocate for them getting out of detention is usually what drives the questions we ask. Yeah. And it, it sounds like there's a huge opportunity for funders to going back to that patience. Like we can't always quantify those things. It's not a good idea to do a social network analysis of an undocumented kiddo. Right. Uh, it's just not, right. that's not good data ethics, um, yeah. but it requires not only patience, but, but trust to say, maybe we don't need to measure some things mm-hmm. so we can mm-hmm. have a more effective measurement down the line. Um, no, I love that. Um, thank you so much. Uh, we're coming up on our time, but, uh, as we both know, you and I can speak for hours and hours if if you let us, um, but yeah. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that, that this crowd hears from you? I, my gratitude for you, to be honest, because you have made me think about data in, in a whole new way. And those words of intimacy and intentionality behind data is something I have learned through our work together on the measurement, evaluation, and learning uh, project over almost last year. Um, and and it's made me see too how how it's not just about data for the sake of like running a program or making a, a program better. Um, but also how an organization runs, how we communicate internally, externally, and what story is telling us about how we're doing the doing. I love that. Thank you. And yes, eternally grateful for for you and for spending time with me um, now here and in this this new way. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. To learn more about the Young Center and their crucial work in immigrant justice, please visit theyoungcenter.org and be sure to subscribe and join us next week.